I suppose any of you who had a good nap last week, we'll see if we can't get you a little more rest this morning. So we're in Luke chapter 19 this morning. Luke chapter 19. If you have a Bible, turn there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there are Bibles in the back of your seats there. You can grab those or they'll put it up on the screens as well. Uh, Luke chapter 19. Now we're in the midst of just a little series leading up to Easter called With Great Expectation. And if you were with us last Sunday and you managed to stay awake, uh, we talked about the expectations of the Lord Jesus. As he heads into Jerusalem, what is he anticipating? What is he expecting? And it was a great time to sort of think not just about what Jesus had said uh, about, about his crucifixion, his resurrection, about his time in Jerusalem, but also to think really diligently about his hopes and his dreams, his desires, all that he knew would transpire there. And so we had a great time looking at that. Now this morning, we're looking at the expectation of the crowd. And as some of you may know, this is called Palm Sunday. Uh, And so we're going to look at a Palm Sunday text. There are several of those in the Gospels. Uh, But we're going to look at this one out of Luke 19 with eyes for what it is the crowd expects and the ways in which Jesus is trying to shape their expectation as well. So Luke 19, and we're going to begin this morning in verse 28. Luke 19, 28 says this. It says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Would you pray with me this morning as we begin? God, what a privilege it is to hold your word in our hands. We pray that you would be glorified as we study your word. We we study it as an act of worship. We thank you for the opportunity we've just left where we were having the, the chance to praise your name through song, to lift high your name. God, we pray now that as we look at your word that your spirit would move in us that you would speak to us, that our ears would hear, that our eyes would see, that our hearts would perceive, and that you would turn us and heal us, that you would give us eyes to see exactly who you are, that we would be able to look into your face and recognize the implication of who you are on who you've created us to be. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
grand entrances, right? These are, uh, this, is, this is probably in your Bible, if you have it with you, it's probably under a heading uh, that was added by the, you know, the editor, uh, the triumphal entry. That may be the way you know this story, the triumphal entry. And, and it is a triumphal entry, but not exactly a triumphal entry in the way you might think. In fact, if you're coming to this text for the first time, you look at this particular entry, and there are things about it that seem triumphal, but there are also a lot of things about this entry that seem kind of weird. You know, there's some things in here that seem a little bit strange. We understand the power and the importance of making a grand entrance. I don't know how much you think about, you know, the way you enter into things. Probably the the worst mistake I ever made with regard to an entrance was right after my son Jack was born. So uh, my son Jack is 16. When he was born, I was actually uh, leading worship for a high school camp at Hume Lake uh, when my wife went into labor. So it was the very last week of the summer of 2000 in August, and we knew that my wife was going to have a baby any day, but I'm leading worship for about a 1,000 high school students, and on the Tuesday night after, uh, after our evening session, my wife goes into labor. Now at Hume, there's no hospital, so when she goes into labor, we have to drive down to Fresno uh, for my wife to have the baby. So we left, and basically I said to the rest of the band, like, hey, you guys are going to have to finish out the week of camp. I don't know if I'll be back. I kind of said goodbye, you know, to whoever I could. And we went down to Fresno. All my kids were born in Clovis at the hospital there. And, uh, and so then when my son was born, I mean, I was going to say it was a really fun time. I don't know that my wife would agree with that. Uh, but it was exciting because he's my first child, this great little guy, you know, and, and we actually, uh, he was born and then we were released with enough time actually to make it back up to camp before the week was over. Right. So we go back up on Friday night, and it's the last worship session of the week, and all the kids that were in camp that week, they knew we had gone down to have a baby because they'd had to put up with the rest of the band during that time, and uh, so we came back, and they were all sort of hoping that they would get a chance to see our brand new baby son, and so I thought, well, I mean, at least we want to introduce him. So on that, on that Friday night at Hume Lake in front of a thousand high school students, I walk out from backstage and I'm carrying our, uh, Jack's little, you know, they have those car seats that go into the car, but they're like a bassinet kind of thing. It's got a handle. You probably all have one in your garage. Um, I'm carrying Jack's little deal and I'm walking out really carefully. And as I walk out onto the stage, you know, the kids who didn't know whether I was going to come back or not that week, it's just like this all the way across the room. It's just like, Oh, you know, and then as I'm coming, I get about halfway out and I, I caught my foot on a step and I trip and I fling the, the bassinet up into the air and it does a double spiral. It falls and hits the corner of the stage and falls onto the floor. And immediately there's like people screaming and there's tears. People, you know, it's like people tearing their clothes. It just feels like the end of the world. And uh, what they didn't know that I did know is that I hadn't actually put the baby in that. Uh, and that I'd done that whole thing to be funny, you know? Ha ha! And uh, uh, let me just say, it didn't, it didn't go over the way I'd hoped. I think, I think most of the people there kind of still hate me, and it's been 16 years. No, we did eventually bring our son out so they could all see him. We didn't let high school kids touch our baby, but we let them look at it. But uh, that wasn't my best entrance. It wasn't my best entrance. In Luke chapter 19, we see, excuse me, we see Jesus making this entrance to Jerusalem. His entire earthly ministry has been headed in this direction. He's always been on a trajectory to the cross. He's always been headed to Jerusalem, to the things that will happen during this time, 
We know that it's Passover season, and so in the hearts of the Jewish people, there is a sense of expectation, and there's a sense of excitement about freedom. Passover is a celebration of God's delivering his people in Israel, delivering them from Egypt and their enslavement, and leading them into the promised land. So in the hearts of all the Jewish people that are in Jerusalem, all the pilgrims that are making their way to Jerusalem, there's this anticipation, this sense of God will save us, God will deliver us. God has a plan for us. And it's in the midst of that climate and in that sort of environment that Jesus is now making his way to Jerusalem. And what I want you to see here is that his entry, while it might look a little strange and it might not be what you anticipate, is chosen specifically by Jesus for a very purposeful reason. And we don't want to miss it this morning. The first question that you have to ask when you see this is, is why does Jesus allow them to declare him the Messiah. Why does he allow them to declare him king? Because all throughout his earthly ministry thus far, he silenced people who tried to call him the Messiah. Remember, he does that with demons, right? When demons see him, they go, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. And he goes, hey, none of that, right? I don't want to hear that. And part of it is Jesus doesn't want to have his testimony made by demons, right? Doesn't want to be seen colluding with them. But more importantly, Jesus has a timeline that he's operating on. Jesus has a plan and a purpose. Remember when Jesus is with the disciples in Luke chapter 9 and he says, what do people say about me? Who do they say that I am? And the disciples go, oh, some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're a prophet. Some people, you know, there's all these different varying ideas. And he says, but what do you say? And Peter has this beautiful answer, this inspirational answer that God gave him. Peter says, you're the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's right. Don't tell anybody. Interesting, isn't it? That Peter gets the answer right. And it's in Luke 9, 21. In Luke 9, 21, it says, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. They got the answer right. They know that he's the son of God. They know that he's the sent one. They know that he's the savior. And Jesus says, I don't want the word getting out. And so it's interesting when we come to Luke chapter 19, that the people are singing his praises. They're quoting a sort of a, a mix. They've created a new song by crafting two older songs together. They've taken Psalm 118, which is a, a classic Passover hymn and a classic Passover psalm. In Psalms 118, it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that would have been a common sort of Passover greeting for people heading into Jerusalem on pilgrimage. They would have looked at each other and said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And back to you, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They've taken that and they've mixed it with a song the angels wrote in Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, a heavenly host was praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill to men. Remember that song that the angels wrote? As the crowd is gathering around, the disciples have gathered around and they're singing in jubilation. Blessed is he, but they changed that word he. They've edited it a little bit. They've sort of taken liberty with the original psalm. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's significant. And then they say, peace in heaven. It's also interesting that they take the angel's song and they don't say peace on earth. They say peace in heaven and glory in the highest. As they're declaring the majesty and the glory of the incoming king, the Lord Jesus, the Pharisees are kind of put on edge. And they say, tell your disciples to be quiet. And he says, no, 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 no. 
even if we could silence them, which I'm not willing to do, even if we could silence them, the very stones would declare this truth. So why now? Why now is it okay to declare it? Why now does it seem, according to Jesus, that even if his disciples weren't singing this song, that he would cause the very nature itself to declare the truth of his Messiahship? Why now? Well, that's a great question. And it's an important question. And in order for us to answer it, we have to look very closely at what's happening here. Let's just take a look at this entrance. In Luke chapter 19, verse 28, he's heading towards Jerusalem, and he's getting very near. They're in Bethany and Bethpage, and he sends them to go and get this donkey, right? And now when you think about a triumphal entry, right? When you think about a triumphal entry, is donkey the first thing that comes to mind? It certainly doesn't come to mind to me. It's interesting that Jesus wants to ride on anything, right? This whole time we've seen him walking and teaching. He's sort of traveling the paths on foot. So why now, as he sort of nears within two miles of Jerusalem, why now does he go, oh, I think it's time to ride, right? And I don't want to ride on something cool. Go find me a donkey, right? There's a reason. There's an answer. You see, Jesus, like the Hebrew people, was very aware of messianic prophecy, And in Zechariah chapter 9, you don't have to turn there because I don't want to blow the rest of our morning, but in Zechariah chapter 9, which is the second to the last book of the Old Testament, if you want to look this up later, in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, there's a messianic prophecy that says this, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, woohoo, right? Man, you read that and your heart just swells. Here comes the Messiah, righteous and having salvation. Look at what else it says. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It was foretold that the Messiah would ride on the colt of a donkey. Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to go into this village and I want you to find, there's a donkey there that's tied up. I want you to get it and I want you to bring it back to me. I'm gonna ride it in. And that's not a coincidence, it's not an accident, it's not that Jesus was too tired to walk, it's that Jesus is himself declaring the truth. You know the prophecies of who the Messiah is, you know the way he's going to come into town, well here I am. People have made much of this deal with the donkey, by the way, and they go, oh, it's a miracle. He supernaturally coerced these people to give up their donkey. We don't actually have any reason to suspect that that's something miraculous. It's entirely possible that Jesus had arranged this far in advance, Because he anticipated wanting to ride in in fulfillment of prophecy. And so it's just as likely that he went to these people earlier and said, hey, I'm going to send a couple of my guys. When you see them untying the donkey, ask them what they're doing. They'll say the Lord has need of it. And if they say to you, well, you know, we want to take it and eat it, then you need to stop those guys, right? Those are bad guys. But if they say the Lord has need of it, then you'll know they're from me. He sends his disciples. They go and get this donkey and they bring it back to him. Back to Luke chapter 19. He does this on purpose, in fulfillment of prophecy. It says in verse 35, they brought it to Jesus and throwing cloaks on the colt, their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. I want you to get a picture of this because it's it's not very glorious. But it is in alignment with the way that the Hebrew people celebrated the coming of King Jehu in 1 Kings, right? In the book of Kings, they celebrate the the arrival of King Jehu by laying their garments in front of him on the road. So there is a precedent here. The people are taking off their jackets. I don't know what you thought or what they thought the Messiah would look like. 
if they thought he would come in on a war, char- war charger, you know, this huge, beautiful steed with an army behind him. You know, some historians have said that it's entirely possible that Pilate is at this very same moment coming into Jerusalem like that on the other side of town with a legion of people behind him on a powerful horse with a sword in his hand, military might, victory on display. Maybe that's what they assumed the Messiah would look like. Maybe that's what they thought the triumphal entry would be. But what we have over here, coming down from the Mount of Olives, is a humble man on the back of a donkey he doesn't even own, sitting on the back of somebody else's dirty coat. Hold that picture in your head and then watch what happens. They see it and they go, we've seen this before. We've read the prophecies in Zechariah. We understand what Jesus is saying. And so his disciples burst into song. Back to Luke chapter 19, they burst into song. It says in uh, 37, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. They were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Right? They're celebrating who he is. They recognize the, the Psalm 118 and they see that he's their king. And so they tweak that lyric. I don't know exactly why they don't say peace on earth and glory in the highest like the angels did. I don't know why they don't quote that verbatim. Except that maybe the disciples at that point have sort of lost hope that peace among men and peace on earth is even possible. At this point, maybe all they can think to celebrate is that there will be peace in heaven and maybe that will trickle down over time. But they sing to the glory of God and they absolutely state in no uncertain terms in loud voices his kingship. But note that that praise is coming from a place of reflection upon what? His mighty works. So there's nobody in the crowd that's like, whoa, that guy looks great on a donkey. You know, let's sing a song about him. No, in fact, their song sort of stands in stark relief to the reality of who they know him to be. They're thinking of the fact that he's healed the lame, that he's given sight to the blind, that he's raised the dead, that he's fed 5,000. He's done all these incredibly powerful works. And they praise him and declare him king, as they tried to do many times before. They declare him king, and Jesus lets it go. Not only does he let it go, he encourages it. The Pharisees are unsettled by it, and that's appropriate, because here's the thing. At Passover, the Romans would have been on high alert for any kind of revolt, for any kind of uprising. Anytime the Jewish people all get together and they're celebrating getting out from underneath oppression by the power of God, their current oppressors should be on guard, right? And so as the people start to say, this is our king, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they're celebrating him and they're singing his praises the king, the Pharisees go, hey, you need to make your disciples be quiet. That's the kind of talk that gets people in trouble. That's the kind of talk talk that's going to call down the Roman guards upon us. That's the kind of talk that isn't going to be good for anybody who's in this vicinity when they hear about it. And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. I wouldn't think about making them be quiet. And even if I could make them be quiet, even if I wanted to, at this point in time, the stones would declare this truth. The stones, nature itself would cry out the truth that I am the king, that God will be glorified, that we will have peace. I don't want to silence it because the time has come, he says. But the Pharisees are unsettled. The Pharisees are bothered by it. Note also that while they're declaring him king, that's the disciples are declaring him king in their song, the Pharisees use a different word. They don't call him king. 
They call him teacher. They say in, uh, in verse 39, it says, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. That's intentional, right? They're trying to downgrade him a little bit. We hear all these people singing about your kingship, but let, let us just remind you, uh, you, you're a teacher. That's what you are. And Jesus goes, no, the people have it right. And even if they were quiet, the stones would reaffirm it. Look at what happens next. We've got a, we got a picture of this man on a donkey that he doesn't own, sitting on the back of some people's dirty coats. The people in the crowd declaring his praise. And now look what happens as he comes further and, and Jerusalem comes into view. Look at this next image. It says in verse 41, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. You have the picture in your head? What, what do you think of when you think the words triumphal entry? Do you picture a humble man sitting on the back of a borrowed donkey with tears in his eyes? It might not be your image or your expectation of triumph. That not, might not be the picture you have in your head. If you were going to organize this, if you were going to be the party planner for the triumphal entry, this might not be the way you would organize it. But as Jesus comes around and he sees Jerusalem, by the way, the city, Jerusalem, that, that word Jerusalem means city of peace. He sees the city of peace. He can hear the people all around him shouting, peace in heaven. And his eyes fill with tears and he starts to weep. And here's what he says. Verse 42. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. City of peace. A hunger for peace. And he looks at Jerusalem and says, you don't even know what it takes to have peace. Would that you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. We talk about Jesus the King we talk about Jesus the priest. Here we see Jesus the prophet. He's looking at the city of peace. And he's weeping because when he looks at these walls, he sees them decimated. It won't be that long before Titus will come in AD 70 and do exactly what Jesus has foretold. He and his army will lay waste to Jerusalem. It will be utterly destroyed. And Jesus sobs for it. His heart breaks for Jerusalem. He says, they're not going to leave one stone left on another. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation, verse 44. You want peace, you sing for peace, you named your city after peace, but I've been here and you can't see me, he says. And he's weeping. You know, it's worth saying, we'll kind of step aside for a second here and say this. It's not enough to be in close proximity to Jesus. It's not enough to be around Jesus' people. It's not enough to be in a city where Jesus' name is you know, spread around. It's not enough to hear things about him or even to watch him from a distance. It's not enough to be in proximity with Jesus. We see people who are in close proximity with Jesus who were never transformed. But you take a huge crowd of people and you watch the ones that are healed in a huge crowd of people where everybody's pressed in against each other and there's this one lady who's healed. And she's not healed because she bumped into him She's healed because she put her faith in him. Because she saw him for who he was. When he looks at that woman in the crowd, he says, 
You're healed today because of your faith. It's not enough to be close to him. My fear is that in the generation in which we live, there are a lot of us who are in close proximity to Jesus, right? You come to church, maybe you read your Bible, you sing the songs, you do all the stuff, you've done the research, you've, you know, you've got all the answers, but you haven't actually seen him. You haven't actually looked to him. You haven't actually trusted in him. And Jesus here looks at the city of peace. He looks at Jerusalem and he weeps and he says, you had an opportunity and you didn't see me. You still don't know the things that make for peace and yet you could have listened. I would cry out to us this morning to say this. Don't miss an opportunity to see Jesus for who he is. I don't know what brought you here this morning. I don't know why you're in this crowd, but listen, the Lord Jesus loves you, right? And he came to earth in the incarnation to rescue you from sin and death. The Bible teaches that we are lost in our sin, separated from God, because we failed to do the thing we were built to do, which is to glorify him. We've served ourselves. We've turned to all other kinds of gods. And because of that sin, we are separated from him, and we're set to be separated from him forever. And Jesus wasn't satisfied with that. We sang about it this morning. He wanted us in eternity with him. Jesus came and he died on the cross, not because he had earned that, not because he deserved it, but because I did. Isaiah says that the sin of us all, the iniquity of us all was laid on him. He went there as a substitute, a sacrifice in our place. Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood and paid the penalty for our sin. But he didn't stay dead. Now, three days later, he rose from the grave not only paying the penalty for our sin, but proving that he has the power to make dead things live. And by his grace, and only his grace, as a gift, he then extends to us resurrection life. The reality is, it's not enough to know those things. It's not enough to win at Bible trivia. It's not enough to sit around people who affirm those things. What matters is that you have put your faith in Christ. That you have recognized that there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. And that apart from his saving work on the cross and his resurrection life, you'll be separated from God for eternity. Let me just say this morning, don't miss the opportunity to respond to Jesus. Don't miss the opportunity to respond to who he is and what he's done. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because they haven't got it. And we even see that in the text right before this. So really quick, let's move through a couple of things. If we just take the four things that happened before the triumphal entry, it's demonstrated really well. If you back up to Luke chapter 18, verse 34. In Luke chapter 18, verse 34, uh, Jesus has just told the disciples, hey, we're gonna go into Jerusalem. I'm gonna be killed. I'm gonna be arrested. I'm gonna die on the cross and I'm gonna rise again three days later. He said it in absolutely simple and plain terms. And look at Luke 18, 34. But they didn't understand. They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. Jesus is saying, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna give my life up. And they're like, yeah, we don't, we don't get it, right? The very next story, Jesus is traveling and there's a blind beggar on the side of the road who calls out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, heal me, right? Help me, show me mercy. And his people, like the people that are closest around Jesus, this is uh, 1839, those who were in front rebuked the blind man, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more. They don't get what Jesus is saying, and they don't get what Jesus is doing. Jesus didn't come to hang out with all the religious people, right? 
He didn't come to walk through a town and ignore the blind and the lame and the lost, the ones who'd been outcast and ignored. He came to rescue them. But the people that are with Jesus miss it. A blind man calls out, and you would hope, you would hope that the people closest to Jesus would go, Jesus, this is awesome. Here's a blind guy. Do what you do. Rescue him, right? But they don't. They go, hey, Jesus ain't got time for that. Shush, blind guy, right? The very next story at the beginning of 19 is the story of Zacchaeus. You know that from the song, right? When you were little, maybe. Zacchaeus was an absolute uh, colluder with Rome. He was a tax collector who was filling his own pockets with taxes. He was taking from the Jewish people in alignment with the Romans. When the Hebrew people thought about what the Messiah would do, they were hoping the Messiah would come and kill guys like Zacchaeus, right? Jesus walks through Zacchaeus' town and he looks up at Zacchaeus in the tree and he goes, hey, can we have dinner? I'd like to get inside your house. Is that possible? Look at what happens when he does that. Luke Chapter 19, look at verse 7. He goes to Zacchaeus' house for dinner. In verse 7, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Right? Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. He's trying to help them get it, but they don't get it. They want a Messiah with a sword, on a fancy horse, with a fancy cloak. They want dominion and destruction and power. But the power and dominion of Jesus is different than their expectation. It says in Luke 19, 11, he tells a parable before the triumphal entry. It says, as they heard these things in verse 11, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And so he tells them a parable about a king that goes away and is coming back and he's looking for those who be faithful. He's trying to help them understand. It's not now. It's not just for the Jewish people who are in alignment with God. It's for everybody. It's a ministry to seek and save the lost, to heal the blind. It's a ministry where I'm going to give my life up. Don't you see it? And they go, yeah, we don't really, we don't know what you're talking about. They don't get it. They don't see it. Jesus looks at Jerusalem and he says, would that you knew the things that make for peace. And it isn't that he hasn't demonstrated them. It isn't that he hasn't taught them. It's that it's possible to look and listen and be near Jesus and keep your expectations, false expectations, absolutely in place. So to come back to our earlier question, why does he allow them to praise him as king at this moment when he wouldn't let them praise him as king before? Why does he allow them to declare that he is the Messiah at this moment when he wouldn't allow them to declare it before, the answer is he wants them to see the paradox of who he is, that he is both the victorious, conquering king, but he's also the weeping prophet on the back of a borrowed donkey sitting on somebody else's dirty coat. He wants them to have this picture of the praises of people, and he wants that to be in the same view as their view of him on the cross, giving his life for the sake of mankind and the glory of God. It's funny, I, I think I've told some of you that I'm a, a soccer ref in Long Beach. And uh, there are all kinds of funny things that happen, you know, when I go out and ref youth games. But re- about two years ago, I had this thing happen where uh, I had a, um, 
I had a game. I was refing a U14 girls game, so it's under 14 girls. I'm refing the game, and there's just this one dad. By the way, every time I ref a soccer game, I've got people cursing at me, right? That just ha- that's just how it works. I get cussed at a lot. That's fine. It's just the name of the game. But I'm refing this game, and there's this one particular dad who just is relentless, you know, just cursing and cursing, and he's yelling, ref, you're an idiot. You need to get the FIFA rule book. You don't know what you're doing. We, you know, it'd be better if we had no ref than to have you. Like, the guy just won't stop. And so finally, I blow my whistle. I, I decide to stop the game because I, as a ref, I have the power to actually send him off. Like I can send him away. And so I, uh, I blow my whistle. I've tried to be tolerant. I walk over to the sidelines. And as I'm walking to the sidelines to address this man, he gets up out of his lawn chair and he walks towards me. And as he walks towards me, he takes his sunglasses off and he goes, Pastor Darren? And I said, uh, yeah. And he goes, I go to your church. And I'm like, I don't know whether to be excited about that or embarrassed about that. I need you to dial it back, dude, or I'm going to have to have you go sit in your car, you know? And he's like, I didn't know it was you, you know? And I could see in his eyes trying to make these things fit, right? trying to make it fit that here in the same skin was a guy who absolutely prioritizes the glory of God above all things, who gets up on a Sunday morning and opens God's word and tries to tell people that they need to surrender their lives to Jesus, to have resurrection life. And at the same time, I'm a guy who cares so much about my city and so much about my neighbors and so much about the kids in our local area that I'm willing to take my Saturday and put on a stupid costume, right? And go out there and let grown men curse at me for hours at a time, right? I was happy for him to see both. Because both are true of me. And they're not mutually exclusive. They make all the sense in the world in the same person. They wanted a conqueror and a judge. He's a weeping savior on a borrowed colt. Today they're crying, king! And in a week, he'll have a sarcastic message nailed above his head that says, King of the Jews is an insult. In several of the gospel accounts, they cry, Hosanna, which literally means, save us now. And in a week, he'll have a criminal, and a Roman centurion looking at him and saying, if you're the Messiah, save yourself. They wanted him crowned with gold, and he will be crowned with thorns. And even after his resurrection... People still don't see it. They still don't see who he is, right? When he's on the Emmaus Road, when he's on the Emmaus Road at the end of Luke and he comes to those two men on the Emmaus Road, they're like, yeah, we were followers of Jesus. We thought he was gonna make the kingdom come, but he died. And we've heard some rumblings that he's risen again. They still don't get it. In Acts, when he appears to his disciples, they go, are you gonna bring the kingdom now? They're still waiting for the sword and the war horse. And Jesus is like, I need you to see this. Jesus comes to show us what a king actually looks like because our view of kingship and leadership, our view of what makes a leader is off. Our expectation is off. We want power, not weakness. We want judgment, not grace. We want victory, not suffering. We want freedom, not slavery. We want wealth, not sacrifice. We want individualism don't we? Not unity. We want domination, not service. And it's possible to look at Jesus 
and still not understand the things that make for peace? Why does Jesus allow them to praise him as the king, as the Messiah in this moment, and he didn't let them do it before? It's because he wants them to see the totality of who he is. He doesn't want them to just celebrate his mighty works. He also wants them to celebrate his mighty works while he's sitting on a donkey, weeping over the fact that Jerusalem has missed it. He wants them to sing the song of his praise and at the same time be able to see him giving his life as a sacrifice for all. He wants us to see those things at the same time. They are not mutually exclusive. They exist beautifully and perfectly in King Jesus. He is victorious, victorious in his surrender. Right? He wants them to see that he gave himself away. Philippians articulates it well. We read part of it earlier. That he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. In that passage in Philippians, nothingness is equated with humanity. He wants us to see that both are true. True simultaneous. He is victorious in his sacrifice. And the danger for us is this. For many of us, our expectation, the power and the freedom and the dominion that we want, we've sort of shaped Jesus to be a representative of those things when he absolutely isn't a representative of those things. Somebody said, and I can't find the original author because it's cited to be from several different people, but somebody said that God created man in his image and ever since, man has been trying to return the favor. that we recreate God in our image, we make him what we want him to be so that we can justify our own selfishness, so that we can justify our own greed, so that we can justify our own pride, our own individualism, so that we can justify the way we wanna live, the way our culture tells us we wanna live, the way we've chosen to do things, we wanna do it that way, and then what we do is we reshape Jesus to fit the mold of how we wanna live. And what Jesus is doing in the truly triumphal entry It's not pomp and circumstance, but what he's truly doing is going, this is what triumph looks like me. A humble king, chosen by God, sitting on somebody else's donkey with tears in my eyes, headed to Jerusalem that doesn't know a thing about peace, to bring peace between God and man through my sacrifice. The New Testament is clear in a couple of places that there's a danger for us to be people who worship the God in our belly, right? Or who are driven by our appetites. And we don't want to be people who are driven by our appetites or our hungers. We want to be people who are driven by a, a full view of this victorious, humble, powerful, weeping king. Because he is all of that. And all of that is exactly what we need. Would you pray with me this morning? And as we pray, can I just say this? If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ, maybe you've been around Christians, maybe you kind of know about him. Jerusalem was incredibly close to Jesus, but they couldn't see him. If you're here today and you've never put your faith in Christ, I would ask you to listen to the Spirit of God and see if he's not calling you to do just that. To cry out from the place where you sit in the quietness of your own heart and say, Jesus, will you save me from sin and death? 
Will you rescue me from myself? Will you extend to me resurrection life by your grace? The Bible teaches that if you put your faith in Jesus, he gives you resurrection life in that moment. Will you do that right where you sit? Don't miss the opportunity to make a decision when Jesus introduces himself to you. And if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, but you find that you've reshaped him into your own mold and your own expectation, would you turn loose of that this morning? God, I pray that you would help us to see the full picture of who you are. I know that as human beings, created beings, we'll never see you in totality. But Jesus, you have shown us something in your triumphal entry. You made purposeful choices to declare something true about you. And our selfish tendency is to look away, to redirect, to refashion and remold you into a form that suits our hungers better. Would you please, Lord Jesus, make us hungry for who you are, not who we want you to be. And change us so that we want you to be exactly who you are. That we can rejoice in the truth of who you are. Draw us to yourself. Transform us into your image, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.